There are some who call me Tim. Hey there, Valley of the Sun and around the world, Tim Jacobs here. Welcome to Life 360 with Tim Jacobs, your one-hour wad with God, your spiritual Zumba class, thigh master for your soul. We are live here on 1280KXEG, so you can always call. You can call us at 602-368-3776, but you can listen to us anywhere in the world by going to the station website, 1280KXEG.com, and downloading the app. So make sure you go do that, and you can listen to any previous show, any previous Life 360 with Tim Jacobs by going to TimJacobsLive.com. I am Tim Jacobs. I am the pastor of Compass Church in the Wild West Valley in Goodyear, Arizona, CompassChurchAZ.com. As always, we would love to have you join us on any Sunday morning, and you can check out our website and see what's going on. But we have a great show today because we're going to be talking, we're going to be getting real about a deep issue in the life of everyone, not just Christians, but everybody, and that is the issue of forgiveness. In just a moment, we're going to talk with Brad Johnson, pastor and author of a book called The Four Laws of Forgiveness, which I, I thought was a fantastic book, very usable, very readable, and you need to check it out. But we're going to talk with Brad in just a moment. But first, I got to tell you something. So last Saturday night, I went out with a buddy of mine and went went to see American Sniper, as did the rest of the world. And we get there, and of course, the show is sold out because everyone's going to see it. So we had to get in line and, and wait for the next show, and we're standing in line. And by the time they let us in, the whole theater is packed, and, and the movie starts. And it's an incredible movie, by the way. I, I, I loved it. You have to go see this movie. Um, and you'll, I'll give a little caveat to that in a, in a moment. But as I'm watching this, and the themes are so, they're, they're just a very vivid movie in terms of the themes, the, the clarity of the messages trying to say. I think we forget a lot about what happened on 9-11 and, and really how we as a country faced a real massive evil. And the, the movie portrays that evil very well. But here I am in the theater watching the movie, and I realize that sitting next to me, there's this woman— and she, she brought her two-year-old daughter into the theater to watch American Sniper. And so out of the corner of my eye, I'm sitting there and this girl, because this is a brutal movie, okay? So you should see the movie only if you have a, a, a relatively strong stomach. And, and certainly whatever you do, please don't take your two-year-old. But anyway, so she takes her two-year-old daughter into the theater and the little girl is covering her eyes and she's getting trained because there's so many shots where they show the, uh, you know, the, 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 sh- the shot of the through the scope so you can see the crosshairs. And so she's starting to realize every time she sees the crosshairs on the screen, someone's head is about to get blown off. So this is this, the little two-year-old. So she's covering her eyes. She's covering her ears. She keeps kind of nestling into her mother. The whole time watching that, and people are getting, I mean, Chris Kyle had something 160 whatever confirmed kills, not to mention the fact that this is a military movie. So they dropped the F-bomb like 350 times during this movie. This little two-year-old. So 
And I got to, like, for me, when I go to the movies, I want to check out from life. You know, I don't want to, I want to just, I don't want to know that anyone else is in there. So if you go to the movies with me, I love you, but I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to hear your opinion about the movie. I don't want to hear your cell phone. I don't want to see the light from your cell phone. I don't want to even see your head move. I just want to watch the screen and forget everything just for a little while. And I try to return the same favor. So I'm a big one on just leave me alone during the movie, but I can't get over this girl. So the movie ends, and of course, it's it's a very somber ending, and, and people are, are silent in the movie theater except for me. And I, I turned to the woman next to me, this woman, the mother of the girl, and I just said, I go, look, your daughter is going to have nightmares. And she looks right at me without even, without a, a, taking a breath, and she says, you know, you can keep your comments to yourself. This is, this is my daughter. She's my daughter. And I just turned back and said, well, it doesn't matter whose daughter it is. It doesn't matter that it's your daughter. She's going to have nightmares. That's what you do. That's what happens to a little girl when you take her into a rated R Clint Eastwood film about war. Now, so the reason I bring this up to you is this a little public service announcement. Please, parents, do not bring your toddlers to a rated R Navy SEAL movie. I mean, is that, is that fair? Is that wrong to say? Am I insensitive? Am I narrow-minded and intolerant because I'm sitting next to a two-year-old who's traumatized by intense violence, the likes of which I'm not even sure I want my 13-year-old son to watch? And you say, well, you got to understand, Tim, she, she may be a single mom. It's a Saturday night and she can't find a babysitter. That's fine. Then why don't you just go see Paddington, that teddy bear movie? Or you could go see Into the Woods or Big Hero 6, that other animated whatever. There's like five other movies you could take your kid to see. So anyway, I say that because I'm thinking to myself and I, and I said something to her. But what are you going to do? So my friends, please. Um, if you take your small child to a movie so they can cry and scream, I mean, whether, whether they're in a stroller or a car seat or a sling or whatever you got that carries your child, please do not take them to a rated R violent movie. There are plenty of other movies. So I'm sitting there going, there you go. So if you do that, you're a bad parent. I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe she's probably going to take her to see 50 Shades of Grey next month too. And why not? It's her child, right? She said, she said, I know what's best for my child. Okay, that's cool. So that being said, my little public service announcement to you. Now, shifting gears. My guest today is Dr. Brad Johnson, pastor of California Community Church in Agura Hills, California, and the author of the book, The Four Laws of Forgiveness. Brad, how are you today, sir? Tim, I'm doing well, and how are you? I am doing very well. Now, you wrote a little book. It's only about 100 pages. It's an ebook, only available, I guess, on, on Kindle, on, on Amazon.com. Is that right? Right. You can get it in paperback on Amazon.com, and you can also get the Kindle version. Okay, so it is available in paperback as well. I didn't know that. But you can, I mean, this is a, it's a great book because you can read it on a plane. Or while you're sitting in the doctor's office, it's a, it's a fast read, but it's very poignant, and it covers a very heavy subject in a very practical way. And the subject, of course, is on forgiveness. I got to ask you first, Brad. Why did you decide to write a book about forgiveness? You know, Tim, it's a uh, central theme in my life these days. The the older I've gotten, I'm 55 years old. The more I've realized how much forgiveness has played a vital part. Not only when I've chosen to forgive or have been forgiven, 
But all those times when I didn't choose to forgive or I wasn't forgiven, those times played a pivotal part in my life, too. And then I started noticing the same thing was true about other people. They were missing or they were experiencing the power of forgiveness. And so I thought if I could contribute to the spiritual and emotional and physical health of people, and forgiveness actually impacts all of those, then I wanted to try. And so I taught on this for a while, and after encouragement from people, they said, Brad, why don't you write your thoughts down? Uh, we can pass them around, and that's what I did. You, in the early on in the book, you mentioned what's what you call the fable of the porcupine, and I, I thought that was a really powerful uh, description of, of a lot of human behavior, especially among cultural Christians. Tell us what the fable of the porcupine is. Well, in essence, it's the idea that porcupines can freeze to death if they don't stay together. Mm -hmm. But the problem with porcupines is they are prickly. And if they stay together and generate body heat and survive, they're also going to stick each other. And so it's learning to survive but you have to do that by being with prickly people. Well, that's just a very, a very basic picture of life. If, if we live long enough, we know that we're going to get stuck by people, and also the pricks that are on our life, the, the sharp edges are going to stick other people. And then forgiveness becomes a necessary component uh, to get along in those relationships. 602-368-3776 is the number to call on Life360 with Tim Jacobs, speaking with Brad Johnson, author of The Four Laws of Forgiveness. If you have a question for Brad, if you're having a hard time forgiving someone, if you don't know what to do, um, give us a call and ask us. Ask Brad. This is your opportunity to talk to someone who's thought through it, who's lived it, who has uh, who studied the topic um, very much in depth, and it's very important that we... Uh, that you, we help you get through these things. I, what I love about the porcupine thing, Brad, is that that's really the way it is with human nature, is we um, either we're going to, to, if we're going to live with each other for any amount of time, we're going to hurt one another, are we not? That's correct. That's exactly right. Uh, and that's what makes forgiveness so crucial. Someone said to me one time, Brad, the only time you don't have to forgive someone is if you believe that you will never again need forgiveness yourself. Well, Tim, I'm too much like a porcupine. I know that the, the sharp places in my life are going to bump into other people, cause some pain along the way. I know I'm going to need forgiveness myself, and, uh, and consequently... I'm compelled then to, to offer that when people, uh, you know, bump into me. It seems like we have one of two choices as people. Either on the one hand, we can... Um, we, we, we can develop a friendship or a relationship with somebody and then which invariably because of that porcupine analogy, invariably the wheels come off the bus, something goes wrong. And rather than choose to forgive, we can bury it. We can get bitter. And then what happens is we bounce into another relationship and we don't really clear up that one. And we kind of just skip like a rock across a lake to relationship to relationship, church to church, community to community without ever really going through that process of what it takes to have a very deep and long-lasting friendship. And, and forgiveness plays a role in that, right? Tim, you're exactly right. People skim and they stay shallow in their relationships because, and, and I don't want to uh, you know, miss this point, because forgiveness is hard. Mm -hmm. I, I state in the book, forgiveness is not for the weak, it's for the strong. And it's not an easy task, but it's an important task. Nothing frees us from our past and for our future 
quite like forgiveness, but because it's hard, it takes some sacrifice. Uh, it ta- it, there's a price for forgiveness, and because of that, most people don't do it. And you're right; they'll just bounce and bounce and bounce and carry all this weight. And you know, research has shown us that not only are we spiritually hindered and emotionally harmed when we refuse to forgive, but we're physically affected. Mm-hmm. There have been studies to show what, what carrying around bitterness and anger and unresolved uh, negative emotion like that does to the physical body. So forgiveness has a lot of benefit, uh, but most people don't experience it because it is, it's challenging to do it and do it well. You write this, I'll, I'll quote one of the um, sections of your book. You say, the best relationship is not the imaginary one that falsely pretends it brought two perfect people together. The sweetest friendships are the real ones where flawed individuals learn to freely give and receive the grace that's needed between them. And you know what's funny about that? Even my, my wife and I, um, we were talking about this, and, and I think what, what's helped our relationship, and it, it sounds strange, but on the one hand, obviously, as her husband, um, you know, as she's my wife, I can see flaws in her because she's different than me, but it was really coming to a point in my life where I had to recognize how deeply flawed I was. And when I really sat back and looked at that and said, you know, my wife is not just a uh, uh, maybe a little more slightly flawed person than I am because I do things the way I want to do them. The world turns out or the world should be the way I think it should be. But really looking at myself and going, I've got some deep, I've got some deep deformities in my soul here. And yet she still receives me. That's, that's a pretty huge part, I think, in understanding first the, the capability that we have to forgive because we see how others hopefully will receive and forgive us. Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. I, I've heard it said like this, that a terrific, long-lasting marriage is little more than two great forgivers finding each other in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and a great marriage does require a lot of forgiveness over time. See, that's powerful because we so often we look at compatibility and we say, "Oh, you've got to, you got to be this personality and this temperament." But but over time, Brad, those you've got to have the capability to to endure with each other. So on that note, though, and and you're you're a pastor, and we're we're looking and again the purpose of of my of our show here and Life 360 with Tim Jacobs is to is to look at every issue in life, kind of like full circle, 360 degrees, and say how does the gospel lift this situation, fix this situation, solve the problems that come up. Why is the gospel so important to forgiveness? You know, it's the, uh, uh, I I would say that forgiveness is the central message of the gospel. Mm. Forgiveness is what's necessary to reconcile two people, or in the case of the gospel, reconcile us with God. Uh, It is the acknowledgement that we all need forgiveness. And there's so much that uh, we see in our own life that, you know, bears this out, that we've uh, been told by other people about us that bears it out. And, you know, intuitively, everybody in their heart knows that they need forgiveness. We've never uh, met a person who who hasn't needed forgiveness outside of Jesus Christ. So we all need it. But the gospel is the good news that God provides it. And when he forgives, not only does he forgive us completely, bring us in a right relationship with him through what Jesus did on a cross, not only does he give us a model of forgiveness that we can follow, 
But what he does is he shows us the power of forgiveness in relationship. Mm-hmm. So if we can understand what forgiveness has done between us and God, it makes perfect sense then that we live out the gospel, if you will, in our relationship with other people by also being forgivers. See, and I don't understand, Brad, how, because obviously the cultural um, mantra of so many people is the phrase, I'm a good person. And I was born a good person. I'm a good person who sometimes makes mistakes. And it's, I don't understand how a person who in their heart looks at themselves and says, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good guy. I'm a good woman. I don't know how they have the capacity to forgive. I don't think they can because at their core, they don't really think they've done anything wrong. So in that sense, we, the beautiful thing about Christianity is it starts with the fact that you and I are deeply flawed. And, and we are in desperate need of forgiveness, and yet that forgiveness has been provided in full by God through the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know how forgiveness happens any other way. You're exactly right, Tim. And, and something I say in the book is that the best forgivers are the people who have been forgiven the most. Those who forgive the quickest are those who have been forgiven the most. Uh, self-righteous types, uh, people who, you know, walk around holier than thou, and they believe other people have harmed them, but they have little capacity to understand how they have knocked down, criticized, been judgmental, jealous of, angry toward. They, they don't see their own capacity for evil against others. Yeah, they make very poor forgivers, and I think you nailed it on the head. Those kind of people don't forgive well because they don't understand their own need for it. But anybody who has been so broken, so humbled, uh, so desperate for the mercy of God through Christ, and then find that God lavishes forgiveness, Mm -hmm. He freely offers forgiveness, those people stand back up, go back into their life, and then they want to share that same mercy and grace and forgiveness with others. We're talking with Brad Johnson, pastor of California Community Church in Agura Hills, California, and author of the book, The Four Laws of Forgiveness. And it's available on Amazon.com. It is a quick read. It's a powerful read. It is a very helpful guide to really spelling out not only what forgiveness is, but also how to do it, and then also what the benefits of forgiveness are. And and I want to try to hit as much of that as possible. But Brad, this you you mentioned in the book your your own personal journey um, with forgiveness, and um, and it's it's a very personal thing to you. But uh, tell us about how how forgiveness has really meant a lot to you in your life. Well, you're exactly right. I think this was the catalyst that brought this whole topic together for me, uh, and it's the reason I gave the subtitle to the book. It's not only how to forgive others, it's how to forgive yourself. I had a moral crisis and complete collapse in my life, in my marriage, uh, eight years ago, and it, it actually uh, undid me. It, it broke me in every way as I began to understand the harm that I had done to so many people around me. It was devastating to me, and I had to, uh, I had to come to terms with my own guilt, my own shame, regret, all those feelings that most people listening have had at some time or another in their life. I thought, what do I do with this? Where do I go with this? And it was hard for me. And Tim, I'd been a pastor before this. It was hard for me to really believe that God's forgiveness could even cover 
my sin, could even cover my uh, the evil and wrong that I had done. It was so uh, big and dark and suffocating to me. I, I really struggle. Is God's forgiveness and grace big enough for even this? And over time, of course, I, I came to understand how rich His mercy is and how comprehensive His grace is, and then what forgiveness really means. Now, I will tell you, uh, believing that God forgave me mm-hmm. and all my shame being gone were two different things. Yeah. I, I came to an intellectual belief that God could and, and had forgiven me when I had come to Him and cried for His grace and mercy and believed He gave that to me. But that old shame kept coming back, and it was a process of learning to uh, trust that into the forgiving hands of God over time, and then finally uh, my shame and guilt went away. But that, that process did take a while. But see, that, you, that's exactly it, Brad. And the, the, the problem with Christians— um, in this area is that we, a lot of non-Christians, they don't, they don't, they're confused about what Jesus really came to do. They, they know there's forgiveness, but they still think they're a good person and they're not sure of the efficacy of the cross. That's a big word, efficacy, but they're not sure about the, the, how, how powerful the, 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 uh, the, the death of Jesus on the cross is. It's not that they're not really in tune with that, but Christians hear that every week and they're told and they're saying they put bumper stickers in their car that says forgiven and they tattoo it on their arms and they sing songs about it and whatever, but they don't let it really seep into their soul. They still carry shame. I want to ask you because you you're pretty, you know, you, the thing I like about what you what you wrote in your book, Brad, is you you talk about what happened and the the sins that that you committed and what you did was you owned it. In the book, you didn't sidestep it. You didn't say, well, you know, I did these things, but you have to understand there were these other factors and it, you know, takes two to tango. You, you really owned what you did in a way that acknowledged the fact that you did hurt other, other people. And I, I honestly, Brad, I respect that because there's so many people, you hear politicians and you hear other people when they get, when they, when they do something sinful, they, they say, well, I made a mistake. And, and you, you come out and you said, you know what? Um, this was sin. And and this was wrong, and and this ex- this exposed a, an evil in my heart, and uh, and you've been very open about that. But my question to you, Brad, is is how do you? And I think what most people want to know is how do you get over the shame and the guilt? You know, I had um, uh, a lot of time over these years to reflect on that, and then as God has brought people across my path, and I see them with shame, it's forced me to ponder it again and and recount my own process and God's work in my heart, here's what can happen. We can, we can come to Christ and we can find His forgiveness. Very often there is a reality, though, that we're people around us mm-hmm. uh, are not as quick to uh, let us out from underneath that sense of shame and guilt. Yeah. And the story in the Bible that has been one I've just clung to, and, I, and I'll be brief with it, but it's the prodigal son coming home. And the two receptions that he got, one from his father, who uh, in Jesus' story is a great picture uh, for us of God, uh, no shame, no condemnation, could have so uh, railed at his son and condemned his son and shamed his son, but the father doesn't do that. The older brother, however, does do that. So there's two ways uh, these family members wanted the son to come home. Uh, The brother wanted the prodigal to come home and remain in his shame. Head down, 
act like a servant, no longer a son. We're not even sure you should have a house, uh, a room in the house. Why don't you live in the barn? Uh, that was how some people, that's how the brother wanted him to live. And that's how mm-hmm. some people treat those of us who fail. The other reception was from the father. And in my mind, Tim, I, this, this part's not, this is extra biblical, this is not in the text, but let me just give you the image. I see the son head down saying his little practice speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. All of those things are true. And the father says, this is my son. And I, in my mind, and I imagine the father lifting, uh, putting his hand, his fingertips under the son's chin and lifting his face. Mm. He says, you're my son. Rings on your finger, sandals on your feet, best robe on your back kill the fatted calf, we're going to celebrate. And the Father wouldn't let his head hang in, in, in my experience with God. And so when I feel, or used to feel, those uh, uh, moments of shame and regret and condemnation starting weighing me down, when I started to forget the, the power of the cross and what it had really accomplished for me, uh, I had to have that image. And I would ask the Lord, Lord, would you just put your fingertips under my chin and, and help me lift my face up and live now as a son and mm. not as a shameful, failed person. And I wonder um, if it, it took, it, it, if until the moment when you did have this, this fall, this, this moral failure, if you had ever really understood the grace of God as deep up until that point. I imagine you probably didn't. Did not, no. Yeah. I taught it, preached it. Yeah. Uh, helped other people experience it, but it, it's exactly what you had described. I had, through most of my life, you know, been the good son, mm. uh, did well in school, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, yeah. And I knew that I was a sinner in need of forgiveness, but that was more theory than seeing the depth of darkness and depravity mm. in my own soul. But when that, when that came out and, mm. and how horribly it came out, uh, and I had to look at my own sin eye to eye. Uh, it was a shuddering experience. We are talking with Brad Johnson, pastor and author of The Four Laws of Forgiveness. If you have a question for Brad, 602-368-3776 is the number on the uh, Life 360 with Tim Jacobs show. Let's right now, let's go to Andrew in Tempe. Andrew, you have a question for Brad. Uh, yeah, you guys have been talking about um, forgiveness and, and going going through the process of learning to forgive yourself for things. And I just wanted to know if you could provide some advice on how to, to come alongside of people that are walking through that stage of forgiving themselves and, and how do we, as uh, fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ, kind of help out in that process or advice for coming alongside of those people and just helping them in their journey. Brad? Yeah, Andrew, thank you. I appreciate the question and appreciate the call. Uh, You point out what I think is crucial in the journey. I had uh, some people who believed in me even before I could believe in me, and and they saw God's future for me even before I could. So you do, just exactly like you described, Andrew, you become a Barnabas. You be a source of encouragement. You keep believing in them, because trust me, there will be plenty around them who don't believe, and there will be plenty mm-hmm. around them trying to 
pull them back, hold them back, keep them in their shame, kind of the older brother of the prodigal son story. So you be that representative of Christ who reminds them you're a son, you're a daughter, you're forgiven, walk with your head up, not in a proud, arrogant way, walk with your head up as a forgiven, welcomed home son or daughter, and you just stay right by their side. And, and Andrew, know this, it could be longer than most people uh, uh, think. It, it could be a couple of years before they begin even standing on their own two feet. Uh, I, I've said this about it. Uh, you you need someone to you need someone believable to believe in you until you can believe it for yourself. Mm. Andrew, thanks so much for the call. And you know, and on that too, Brad. So just to, to get very practical here for a for a few minutes, when sometimes when is it appropriate? See, for example, I've had people call me, and people in my life maybe that I've, I've we, I had a dust up with and. And then, you know, we kind of fix it, but then life goes on, you drift apart and circumstances change. But I've had people call me up after years and they'll say, hey, um, Tim, I know we haven't talked in a while. Hey, it's great to hear from you. Yeah, I I just want to tell you, um, you know, I've been challenged lately to forgive people and I just wanted to call you and just let you know that that I've forgiven you. And and I've kind of sit there going, Okay, thanks. I, I I didn't know that you were mad at me. Like I didn't know that you needed to go to some seminar and 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 so it's almost like it reminds me of um of that Billy Madison movie with Adam Sandler when when he like calls the guy and the you know and he says I just I'm sorry and then the guy crosses his name off the list that people he wants to kill or whatever and you know you're just like <laughs> okay thanks I didn't know that that you hated me so much I, I don't know I, I I'm glad you've forgiven me but I know there's a problem. When is it appropriate? How how much should we extend? And when, when are there times when we just we need to forgive and maybe not approach someone? I mean, how does that work practically? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I uh, the rule of thumb that I have followed and offered as counsel to others is uh, certainly you want to make sure you're doing it at a time or in a way or two people where it will honestly do good. Mm. Uh, when it's been a number of years and the likelihood that the person isn't even aware that they've done something wrong then that work of forgiveness, that need to forgive, that's your own journey. That's your own process. And I, I deal with this at the end of the book. You you uh, pay for that gift in your heart. You wrap that gift. You have that gift. And then you just lay it aside. And then the work of forgiveness that needs to happen in your heart has happened. Whether or not the other person ever comes and receives the forgiveness or knows about it or whatever. And there are some other instances where going back to a person uh, having a conversation with them, and, and an affair would actually be one of those illustrations, and apologizing and mm-hmm. forgiving or having a an in-depth personal conversation with a person after some time would probably do more harm than good, and I would counsel against that. Yeah, and, and I think that's the other part, too. Because you've forgiven them, because there are people listening, and maybe they are in a, in a codependent relationship or an abusive relationship where they can forgive and should forgive, but they really shouldn't go back uh, because, right, because the person themselves maybe hasn't changed, but the person that's been hurt really needs to release that hold. Do you counsel people there? I mean, when do you forgive? Where's that line between forgiving and then just pretending like nothing happened? Absolutely. Forgiving and trusting again, forgiving and then feeling safe again. And I deal with that a little bit. It, there is a there, there are two sides to the forgiveness equation. There is the need for us as Christians who have been forgiven, 
to, in the same way, turn around and forgive others. Uh, however, uh, if the other person it doesn't confess, doesn't, we use the Bible word repent or turn in a positive direction, if they don't establish a healthy track record where you can trust them, mm-hmm. then I counsel people to wait. Uh, they mm-hmm. can do the whole work of forgiveness, have their heart clean, have that gift, you know, ready and, and wrapped and on the doorstep for the person to receive if ever they, uh, you know, do change and turn. But if a person is uh, abusive, that's a good illustration, uh, and there's no change, then no, distance has to be kept. You, you always hold out. Forgiveness always hopes that a mm. relationship can be restored. Yeah. But it does require, even between us and God, it wasn't just carte blanche forgiveness. There, there is our part of confessing and acknowledging our need for it, turning from our old life and beginning to follow Jesus. So even, even in our relationship with God, we had to acknowledge and turn. And when we forgive others, they also must acknowledge their wrong and turn for the whole equation to be complete. And where forgiveness really gets wild is when it is, it's really that power to do things that, that people wouldn't normally think were possible to, to restore relationships, even after tremendous amounts of, of hurt. And at some point, somebody's got to be that person who who kind of absorbs that and in the in the love of Jesus just says I've got to somehow let Jesus cover that sin and and release this person's hold on my life but in terms of benefits and we've only got a, a minute or two more in this segment but what are what are the benefits of forgiveness Well I I think you hit the nail on the head there there is a personal price to pay to forgive. You lay down your right for revenge, mm. you lay down your right to retaliate, you lay down your right to stay mad. You pay the price so that you can give them this gift. And that's what Jesus did. He paid the price in order to give it. Uh, the benefits right. are freedom and joy. Mm-hmm. The benefits are a sense of peace with God because we have now walked in His way and we're closer to His heart. The benefit mm-hmm. is uh, a restored relationship in many, many cases. And uh, I could tell you countless times where forgiveness has changed the course of a, of a whole family generationally. Mm. Absolutely. And that person that was so big in your mind, in your in your mind space, in your attention, that person becomes smaller. Their their effect becomes smaller, and you almost see them as as someone who is in deep need of of the grace of Jesus. And and they they're actually kind of put in their in their proper place, for lack of a better term, in your life, as opposed to being this dominating force of bitterness and hatred that does basically wreck your life without even knowing it. That's right. We, we, we often say to people, forgiveness is setting a prisoner free and realizing the prisoner was me. Absolutely. Hey, Brad, listen, I want everyone to go out and to get Brad Johnson's book, The Four Laws of Forgiveness. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. And um, hey, I'm glad. You, are you doing well? Is life treating you well? Doing really well. I'm, I'm thrilled with life. Life is good. God's blessing our church and ministry. And Tim, I, I am a big fan of yours. 
and Compass Church, and thank you for the opportunity to be on your program. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brad. Brad Johnson, pastor and author of The Four Laws of Forgiveness. And so that, uh, that is a book that you need to go out and get. And so, again, if you have calls on that, 602-368-3776. This is Life 360 with Tim Jacobs, and we'll be right back. I want to talk for a moment to my listeners in Phoenix. You know, if you're like me, you're trying to stay active, you're trying to stay strong, you want to beat back the hands of time and, as Rod Stewart once said, stay forever young. But in the process of doing all that, you're going to bang yourself up a little bit. You know, you're going to fall off your mountain bike, you're going to throw too much weight over your head. Hey, you may even pull a muscle reaching for the nachos at the Super Bowl party. But that's why you need to talk to my friends at CairoFit. A ChiroFit is a full-service chiropractic physical therapy massage center, and they have locations around the valley. They have one in Buckeye, one in Tempe, Peoria, and they are opening up one very soon in Goodyear. So you want to give them a call at 623-773-2000. That's 623-773-2000. And go in there and get fixed up because we can talk all day about how to deal with your spiritual health, but you got to take care of your physical health too as you're out there loving life, loving the body God gave you. Work hard and it'll get beat up once in a while, but the folks over at ChiroFit can help you fix it. So give them a call. Again, 623-773-2000. 37 minutes after the hour, everyone. I am Tim Jacobs. This is Life 360 with Tim Jacobs. And the number to call is 602-368-3776. If you have a residual question about what we just talked about with Brad Johnson on forgiveness, you want to talk through an an issue in your own life, absolutely love to speak with you about that. Because, you know, we're real people here. We really are. I'm a real guy. You know, yesterday even, and I'll I'll just come out and say it. Yesterday, I was with my family, it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Kids were off of school, and, and uh, it's a great day to commemorate the, uh, the sacrifice and the words and the inspiration of Martin Luther King Jr. We were over at the, um, the outlet mall over at, in Glendale, and we were just taking care of a few things. And I, my, my son and I were together. My, my wife and my daughters, were, we were, they were split up. We were split up, and, and they were doing one thing, and we were doing another thing. And so I'm, I'm walking. I'd hit the restroom. I'll just be honest. I had to go to the restroom. So I'm walking down that hallway there to go to the restroom and I'm texting while I'm walking. And I'm just texting my wife trying to figure out when we're going to meet up. So I'm texting and I'm walking and I walk into the bathroom and I look up and I'm looking around and I go, hey, I don't see the, uh, the male facilities anywhere in this room. Where did they put these things? And I'm, I'm literally in the bathroom for like 15 seconds and I'm walking around the bathroom and I'm thinking to myself, is this, are we going gender neutral here on these bathrooms now? I don't know. And all of a sudden it hit me that I had walked into the women's bathroom. So I turn around and I, I make like the split second. Thank God nobody else was in there. But I'm, I walk out and there's my son and he, he's his face is like beat red. He's laughing like crazy. And he thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. And I said, I'm like, hey, 
Why didn't you tell me? So I just want to see how long you'd be in there. So my friends, don't be like me. You got to be so careful when you're texting because you never know what you might walk into. You know, people have walked into fountains and they've walked into walls. They've hurt themselves, walked off cliffs, you know? So anyway, but, but we're just regular people. I'm a normal guy. I do moronic and idiotic things like that once in a while. But anyway, so, but I got to tell you, the Super Bowl is coming. And we noticed that when we were out because we were right there by the stadium and it's huge. And the Super Bowl is supposed to come to Phoenix and it's supposed to bring a lot of money. And I want to throw out something to you that you may kind of wig out about a little bit. But I'm going to say this. I think money is good. I think money is a good thing. Now, I want to bring this up to you because tonight there is going to be the, uh, the President Obama is going to give his State of the Union speech. And apparently he is going to spend some time talking about tax, uh, tax hikes on the rich. And it's going to be kind of one of those things where it's a haves versus the have nots and income inequality and all those kinds of things. And, and there is that. And again, this is not a political show per se, but it's just a fact. It's a fact that there is an agenda to, to create a sense of urgency, to create this idea. And as we saw an article yesterday, that the richest 1% of the world are slated to control 50% of the world's wealth. And so we have this widening gap, this widening inequality gap. Now, here's the problem. Christians, when it comes to money, they're kind of weird. We're kind of weird. I'll tell you why. Because on the one hand, um, we're, we're told and kind of beat over the head by lots of pastors, of which I am one of, a, of those who are pastors. We're told that money is evil and the root of all evil and blah, 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 blah. Even though the Bible actually says it's the love of money, the love of money that is the root of all evil. So on the one hand, you have Christians that are feeling guilty if they have money or they're broke and they got to they gotta bum, you know, some groceries off of a friend or a Walmart gift card from their, their small group at church or whatever, because they mismanaged their money. And even though they went to 15 financial peace university classes, they still can't get it right. Because Christians don't really know what to do with money. A lot of times there was an article that came out of Christianity today.com and it was written by, uh, Amy Becker. And she wrote, I love the title of her article because she's why we need rich Christians why we need rich Christians. And she goes through and talks about, of course, wealth can do terrible things to people. And wealthy people can be stingy. Wealthy people can be mean. Wealthy people can be uh, out of touch with how the quote-unquote other half lives. But if you have wealth and you are a Christian, you have the opportunity to do really amazing things. She, she gives that example of a guy named Don Flo, the owner of 31 car franchises in North Carolina. Now, a lot of times, what does the popular culture do? Uh, he's a slimy car dealer, and he has all these car dealerships everywhere, and he's got his goofy commercials on there, and he's always offering you these deals and wants to take your money and rip you off. But she talks about the, the CEO of, Don, of, uh, of these car dealerships. This guy's name is Don Flo in North Carolina. And, and he, he talks about how valuing people as created in the image of God is core in his business and makes him a better person and has been the catalyst for him being so successful. And the article says, 
they, they serve, this company serves the community through building houses and establishing after-school programs for at-risk kids. Flo's Christian commitments have led him to use his business profits for the common good. So I want to tell you something. When you watch the speech tonight, whether you're an Obama supporter or not, I want you to ask yourself the question, is the direction the country is going, or at least the direction that our executive branch wants to go economically, by raising taxes on the wealthiest people, is, is that the direction that's going to end up creating more jobs? Is that the direction that's going to be the best direction economically for society? And I want to make this statement to you. If you're a Christian, I think you should try to be someone who can make as much money as you can. And I don't think you should make any apologies about that. Now, I know that people can get way out of line and it can affect their marriage. They, they can, they can, and the pursuit of money can kill a marriage, can wreck your relationship with kids, your kids, can make you completely physically destroyed. But if you're able to be someone who can keep, who can, who can put Jesus first in your life, and honor your, your wife or your husband and your family and see them as priorities when it comes to your work life and it comes to asking God to prosper you in what you do, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I agree absolutely with this article that we need rich Christians. We need Christians who not only want to do good in their hearts, but actually have the capability of doing it. Because you know what? Making money, honestly, and I want to talk to you business guys out there, okay? Because a lot of times the church sells you guys short. And, the, and, and you go to church and you sit there and you're always taught how the holy people are the people who are poor. And the holy people are the people who are subjugated. And while, yes, having, be, living in poverty, you know, there's a lot of people who, who can do a tremendous good and still be poor, but Oftentimes you can tend to feel like, you know what? The only holy people are the ones that are out there, out there being missionaries, doing something. But, but I just, I'm, I run a business. I run an investment banking firm. I, I run an organization. I'm responsible to make payroll. And you're not really affirmed very much that what you do is holy. I want to tell you something. That making money honestly because of hard work, that is a holy thing. When you go to work and you get rewarded for that work, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. Prospering, doing well, is a holy thing. Because you know why? This is so important. In, in a free market in which we live, which you should every day of your life be grateful for, in a free market like we, like we live in, the key to being successful long-term in whatever it is, the very fundamental concept of being successful in business is this. Serving the needs of someone else. Putting a smile on someone else's face. If you do that and you do that well, then that person will reward you out of their own free will. It is an amazingly beautiful concept, and yet it is derided and oftentimes by Christians who think that economic systems don't matter. They think that the economies are amoral. And the truth of the matter is that that is not the case. That, it, that a system, you understand that, that in the Ten Commandments, do you know this? 
In the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, this is what it says. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Don't covet it. And yet how many times do we hear, even Christians saying, oh, the rich people, all this stuff. And you see a nice car driving by that's nicer than yours. And you go, well, he's probably ungodly. He probably stole that. She probably isn't giving her life over to God. She's selfish and she bought that car. You know what? That's flat out sin, my friends. That is coveting what your neighbor, you don't know how they got that. And all it does is make you unhappy. But here's the deeper part about that commandment, my friends, is that it assumes and presumes private property. It presumes that people own stuff and it belongs to them. And quite frankly, you do not have a right to it. Just because it's more than what you have does not mean that you have a right to, to leverage the government to come in and take that and give it to you. That is wrong and that is evil. Now, the answer to our economic woes and the economy, the economy's getting a little bit better. And I think a lot of people would agree to that. And some, there are some, you can, you can kind of get into the weeds there and make that argument. But as Jim Clifton writes in his book, he just came out with a book called The Entrepreneurial Strengths Finder. And he says, you know, a lot of people think that innovation is the way out. The innovation, so, you know, you get a better iPhone and the technology in, the, in your car is going to get better and the different kinds of engines and blah, blah, blah. And innovation is great. But he says, you know what we need? We need entrepreneurs. That's the key. He says, we need to go down into the high school level and we need to start assessing people who are fit to start and lead organizations that can do what? Create jobs. I'll never forget hearing Linda McMahon, the wife of Vince McMahon, whom, and I got to admit, I'll just tell you, I'm a WWE fan. My son and I watch Raw every Monday night. And um, yeah, we fast forward through the diva part, but you know, we like, we watch Raw. And so, um, but, but Vince McMahon's wife, Linda, she was running for Senate uh, in Connecticut back in 2010, I think it was. And she's debating the other guy. I, th I think his name was, um, what was his name? It was like Richard Blumenthal, I think it was. And he ended up winning, which isn't a big shocker. But they asked, they asked the question, they asked, well, how are jobs created, right? This is a debate. And Blumenthal goes into this long, completely unintelligible explanation of how a job is created and the government does this and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, I, you, can't, you couldn't follow the line of argument. And then it come, they get to Linda McMahon. They say, how is the job created? And this is what she says. An entrepreneur takes a risk. An entrepreneur takes a risk. That's how a job is created. And you know what? I'm here to tell you something. We talk about Life 360 with Tim Jacobs, the gospel being foundational to everything. Jesus says, if you really want to love someone, you serve them. If anyone follows after me, you, you, if you want to be my servant, you've got to, in a sense, wash each other's feet. You've got to care for the needs of others more than you care about yourself. And my friends, that is the essence of what entrepreneurship should be. That expresses itself Aren't you glad that somebody came up with a with with the iPhone? That somebody came up with 
the Samsung Galaxy, that somebody came up with a way for you to stay in touch with people better? Isn't that a, it, does, it puts a smile on your face. Now that person may not even be a Christian, but that's not the point. The point is, is that we live in a society that allows people to develop relationships with each other without ever having to really hang out with each other. Meaning, meaning two people that have no reason to talk or to interact with each other, now through the vehicle of business, through a mutual desire to please one another, are able to have a relationship that's mutually beneficial. Someone makes something for me because they've assessed my needs and I gladly give them a reward for it. You're going to tell me that's morally neutral? You're going to tell me that the government taking the, the, the ability away from someone to do that at a greater level is, is, is amoral? I don't buy it. You see, the Bible, my friends, presumes private property and presumes the fact that some people are going to have more than others. And that's really your problem to be able to say, you know, the next time somebody sees something and you become envious, and I'm telling you, my friends, our culture is promoting class envy like never before, and it's rotten from the core. It is an ungodly, wicked, and evil thing. You agree or do you disagree? Call me 602-368-3776. Why is this so important? Well, you know, you take a guy, the, the reality, my friends, is this. The more money you take from very wealthy people, they're going to be fine because they're very wealthy. You know who it hurts? It hurts the not so wealthy. So you, I've always used this illustration. Let's say you have a guy who lives in a very nice wealthy community. Um, and, and he looks at his house and he says, you know, what would really finish off my house is a nice wrought iron gate right in the front. And so he's, he gets some bids and he's, he's all ready to, to sink a couple thousand dollars into a wrought iron gate. But right before he does it, he gets hit with a tax bill or he looks at his check and, and the government's taking more out. So he goes, you know what? It's kind of funny. Now that I see that, that I have less money in my account than I thought, well, I guess I can't get the gate. So I'm not, I'm, I'll just have to wait on it till next year. Meanwhile, he just goes about his life. Meanwhile, there's another man whom he was about ready to hire, who's a middle-class, blue-collar guy who spends his whole life welding wrought iron gates. And he's all excited because he just got a job to build a gate for some guy in a wealthy house. But because the government now took more money out of this guy's pocket, he's, they've effectively severed the relationship, the free relationship between one man to another. And the guy, rich guy says, sorry, man, I... You know, I guess you got to pay my bills too. Can't do it. And so the, uh, so what happens? The rich guy's fine. The middle-class guy suffers. He goes, comes home and says, sorry, honey, uh, I can't go on the vacation this time. Sorry, honey, we can't get new clothes for the kids. Sorry, honey, I can't take you out to dinner. I thought I had a job, but the guy said he couldn't, he couldn't afford it. And these are the kinds of things that happen. And you say, well, yeah, but we're just going to give this middle-class guy more money. But he didn't earn it. You, or you, the, the, the guy in poverty, the, the, the blue collar, we're just going to give him more money. But he didn't earn it. You take away the possibility of people mutually benefiting from the service of one another. And you guys, that's morally beautiful. That's what the economy should be. That's what it's all about. And so as you watch this speech tonight, and as we continue to engage in this dialogue, remember that economics matter, and it is part of living in a society under the rule and the kingdom of God, that God does care how these systems work and it should impact how you vote. So there you have it. I was talking to my son about this as well. He says, dad, how do you start a business? I said, real simple, son. 
Find out what somebody needs. Think about what the world needs and doesn't have yet. Or think about what the world does have, but it's not very good. And think about how to put a smile on someone's face. Now, I hope this show put a smile on your face. I'd love to hear more from you. I'd love to get feedback from you. I read all my emails. I get back to everybody who emails me. Email me at tim at compasschurchaz.com. That's tim at compasschurchaz.com. I love feedback from you. Just let me know you're listening to the show. Tell me about you, who you are. I just love to know who's out there, okay? And remember, you can always go to timjacobslive.com for any one of the podcasts. We'll have this show up in a matter of hours. And as always, don't forget that I am the pastor of Compass Church in Goodyear, Arizona. And I'd love to have you visit anytime. And till then, till next week, I want you to live life to the fullest. And I hope you have a wonderful week. I'm Tim Jacobs. 